Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. The difference that makes a difference now is how can I support and serve the people I'm with, not how I'm going to create great change, not how I'm going to reverse climate change. I know these things are no longer possible. So I want us to find how we can be of usefulness. And those moments are wonderful. In the midst of all the darkness, they're nourishing. I'm Sarah Wilson, and this is Wild a show where we talk with the biggest minds in the world about the ideas that can help us love and save our one wild and precious life together on this planet. Meg Wheatley, Meg Wheatley. For years, I've been sent quotes and links and video grabs of Margaret or Meg Wheatley's work. I've been told you really need to know about Meg Wheatley. Now, finally, I looked into her writing and a few of her podcasts, and it turns out her wisdoms are indeed profound and also perfectly calibrated for where we are all at right now in the world. It also ties in with some of my own field of study, which is looking at the broader picture of what's going on with all the intersecting crises and the fact that the data has begun to paint a confronting picture, that we might not make it that we might have missed the deadlines, that the systems that hold our world together are unravelling, and that what we were warned of, pandemics, oil crises, mass civil unrest, runaway warming and so on, well, they're all here. We're now in it. Meg has been on a path of realisation, grief, research, despair, and then leadership for more than a decade in this area. And so I'm very honoured to have the opportunity to have her here on Wild to talk through the phenomenon of civilizational collapse, why we might be in one, and then how she feels that she can provide leadership and how we can all provide leadership, real leadership, which is what we are going to need going forward, no matter your take on the idea of collapse. Some other data points to know about Margaret or Meg Wheatley. She is a writer, teacher and management consultant who has worked for 50 years helping humans adapt to their world using systems analysis, chaos theory and deep spiritualism. And I should say she's good friends with one of my heroes, the Buddhist monk Pima Chodron. Poets, scientists and philosophers quote her writing. She has worked in countless disaster situations around the world for governments on all continents, including Antarctica and was commissioned to transform the leadership of large institutions such as the US Army and the National Park Service. Plus, she's the author of 12 books, including Who Do We Choose to Be? and the forthcoming Restoring Sanity, in which she advises on how to serve in this time of unravelling. Meg is now approaching 70, and this conversation is among a number I've had here on Wild with elders who I'm calling on to help me. They always say yes to the requests and they show up with deep calm and compassion and no agenda other than to help those of us seeking better leadership and wisdoms. I'll put a few of those episodes in the show notes if you want to catch up. In this case, I wanted to call on Meg for her advice on something that many listeners here and in the community over at Substack are asking me and others about. Who do we be? How do we do we help? How do we live a life when it would very literally seem there is nothing we can do to stop the conflicts, the global warming, the cascading tipping points, the collapse? I get very upset toward the end of this conversation, and not for the reasons that might seem obvious. It's when we start moving into discussing the joy that can be found in despair. Halfway through the conversation, I also decide to save some of the harder questions, such as how long are the models saying that we have left, 
where do we live and how do we raise kids, given all of this and so on, for a secondary episode, which I will run on Substack. You can go to sarahwilson.substack.com and it should be up right now. I did this because I appreciate that some of you here will want to have space to discuss what we cover in that extra episode and we'll be able to do that in the comments thread together. All right, please meet the wonderful Margaret Wheatley. Hello, Meg Wheatley. It's an incredible honour to have you here on Wild. I have an incredible amount of respect for your honest work. I'm also a little bit nervous about this conversation because I suspect that I'm going to find it confronting for a bunch of reasons. But I just want to take a, a moment to set things up for listeners because your work is big, it's broad, it's super important. We're talking at a time together of unfathomable complexity and tragedy geopolitically, with the climate, there's lots of fracturing happening in every direction. And like many listening here today, I've been operating in a realm up until recently of a lot of hope, this idea that everything's fixable, that this is a blip, you know, it's an anomaly. But more recently, I've been forced to recognise that something big is going on and that the thinking that I've been applying no longer cuts it and that indeed things are collapsing right now. We're in it. This is a really new idea, Meg, to many listening here. They've started to sort of pick up on it with a number of my guests that have been on. And there's also pushback already happening, right? Like there's lots, it's sort of like the new denialism and I'm bracing myself for that. But this, yeah, this notion of collapse, this idea that our civilization is in collapse, it's a lot to take in, but I'd like us to talk through that and to give a bit of context. So you've studied civilizations throughout history and how dozens of sophisticated civilizations in the past 5,000 years or so have all collapsed. They've all collapsed and that it's a cycle. And our civilization, the current one that we're in, is not immune to it. Could you explain this and also where we are at in 2023-2024 in this collapse cycle? Well, thank you for being courageous enough to ask me and all of your listeners to understand where we are in the cycles of history. There's nothing unusual or exceptional or unique that is going on right now in global civilization. It started in the West. It started especially in America. But global civilization is now what we're speaking about throughout history. Well, let me start even farther back because we all know something about how life works. Life is cyclical, right? We're born, we live, we age, we die. We have the seasons, we have these cycles. And the first thing we must confront is that many of us were brought up in an anti-cycle thought form, which says things always get better. Progress means everything is getting better and better. We are the height of civilizations. We are the smartest, most conscious people ever on earth, which is just ridiculous. But as David White, the poet, said, if you think life is always improving, you're going to miss half of it. So where we are is, first of all, let's understand the cyclical nature of us of, in our bodies and the cyclical nature of everything alive. And then we come to the scale of civilizations. Civilizations are born, they rise, they flower, they bloom, and then they start their downfall. It's such a predictable pattern. I'm going to give you an example of it. Well-documented, every complex place-based civilization always exhibits the same patterns. And in the last stage, people are distracted. Life feels very degraded. And this is what I'm just amused by this in a sort of dark way. At the last stage of a civilization, which is the age of decadence, hypersexuality, hyper-seeking entertainment, and I'm not speaking just about us. I'm speaking about 8th century Byzantine culture or Incan culture or any culture. It doesn't matter where you are on the planet. 
We always think of Roman, but this is much more generalizable. So you find this in, in Asian cultures. You find it in many different times in Egyptian culture. You find it in South American and Central American cultures. The Roman is more particular to us, but this is what happens. People are not only distracted and seek entertainment, and the leaders want to keep them entertained so that they don't pay attention to what's going on. The civilization exhausts its wealth in war, which is definitely happening in America right now. And people worship not divinities, but entertainers, celebrities musicians, actors, and other celebrities, but mainly those categories of musicians and, and actors. We're living with a reality right now in the U.S., actually this applies globally, where people are noticing how Taylor Swift <laughs> and Britney Spears created economic benefit to every location they did their massive, beautiful shows in. And they have now an economic validity. And why is that happening? Because at the end of a civilization, people thrive on celebrity culture. And that's where they take their inspiration. That's where they take where they're loyal to, where they're, you know, it's beyond fans. And this is not to disparage anything, especially that Taylor Swift is doing, but it's just part of the pattern that every civilization, every civilization manifests. So my position is, I don't want to just explain this to us. I want us to face this reality so that we can figure out how can I be of service in this time? How can I move out of denial? How can I stop being blinded by hope? What Michael Dowd calls hopium where we believe that we can supersede all the laws of nature. Nothing applies to us except what we want to apply. I want us to be free of hope and fear, because they go together, by the way. If you hope for something, then when it doesn't happen, and this is where this characterizes what's happening with people engaged in climate work, they now see what is truly happening at an exponential rate that is shocking. Every time we hope for an outcome, what we come up with is the other side of hope, which is disappointment, fear, cynicism, depression. And I want to I want to make sure we talk about these very strong emotions because they are part of facing reality. But I want people to understand what's going on, not to go down in depression but so they can figure out, okay, what is a useful contribution at this moment? Where can I serve my family, my work, my community? What can I do that will make a difference now? But it's a different difference. I want to get on to all of that, but let's just stay with this idea of collapse because, as I say, I think it is very new to a lot of people. We've read the history books. We kind of know about the Roman Empire collapsing in terms of seeing the whole of the, the ebb and flow of human civilization as a cycle of collapse, of building up maintenance, building up to an opulence, a time of bread and circuses and all of that kind of thing, and then a collapse, it is quite new in terms of thinking that we're part of that, that we could possibly be part of that cycle. Could you actually get a little bit specific about when we're talking about collapse, what are we talking about? I am going to read you a description of the pattern of collapse because it's shocking. But give me, is it which which book is this from? It's in every recent book I've written. This is an important question. I'm very grateful that you asked it because when we read these descriptions from other cultures and we see the pattern, then. There's no avoiding it, but then when we no longer avoid reality, we get into very strong emotions, powerlessness, grief, loss, anger, and I do want to make sure that we speak to those as well. All right, this is a generalized description 
of every complex civilization in its final stage. It comes from a wonderful book called Immoderate Greatness, Why Civilizations Fail by William Ophuls. This is his description. Frivolity, aestheticism, hedonism, cynicism, pessimism, narcissism, consumerism, materialism, nihilism, fatalism, fanaticism, and, and other negative behaviors and attitudes suffuse the population. Politics is increasingly corrupt, life increasingly unjust. A cabal of insiders accrues wealth and power at the expense of the citizenry, fostering a fatal opposition of interest between haves and have-nots. The majority lives for bread and circuses, worships celebrities instead of divinities, throws off social and moral restraints, especially on sexuality, shirks duties, but insists on entitlements. This is the generalizable, validated description of what happens in every civilization in its final stage. It's so, so familiar. It feels uncanny and also ridiculous, sort of struggling to think that that's been happening for 5,000 years, right, across you know, all different types of, of cultures. I mean, I'm thinking through all the pushback that I receive when I start talking about this and no doubt you've seen, witnessed, observed, you know, experienced. You know, a lot of people want to put their faith in technology, AI, transhumanism, the fact that we can somehow invent our way out of this because we're that superior. And, you know, I, I think I've heard you and others talk about the fact that that's also very particular to the collapse process, this idea that the technology, right, that we that took us to our heights and our superior complexity is also the thing that is our downfall. Have I got that right? You absolutely have it right. It even has a name, and I have written about this, called technological magisterium, the belief that we're at the top of the pyramid in history, we're the most conscious, creative, and techno-fabulous civilization that has ever evolved, and technology will save us. This is part of hopium, the belief that we can supersede the laws of the planet, the laws by which things happen and cause and effect happens. And it's also, why would we stay in denial? I, I want people to look at this. These are proven false grounds for hope. They do not serve us. We now are seeing the, the results of what social media has done to our children. If you have a young daughter or a teenage son, what, how has social media influenced them, changed them, led to really awful issues of anxiety, self-image, bullying, and higher and higher levels of mental illness, which is increasing the rate of suicide. That was a technological miracle. It was meant to connect us. It was meant to bring us closer together. And now it is the primary vehicle for misinformation and hate. And when people don't have, when you don't have, any of us don't ha know what's real, what does that do to our mental state? What does that do to our confidence? How does it affect my ability to make sense when I don't believe anything now? And that's increasing with deep fakes and with AI. So we're living in an increasingly incoherent, meaningless time in our own lives because of technology. And that's happened in past civilizations as well. Their version of technology, their version of progress has done the same thing. Yes and no, but they, they did not have the ideal of technology saves us. They had other, other possibilities and other methods. This techno-magisterium is new and that we're global with it and that it's instantaneous and that communication cannot be trusted, but it's instantaneous misinformation. And now it's being deliberately used 
if you look at any of the elections, this is something I'm quite interested in, so I do look. So Slovakia recently had, it was noted that over 50% of the people were being fed misinformation, getting their information by the social media. You cannot run a political campaign that's grounded on rationality. We've seen it here in the U.S. now. It's happening all over Europe. We're in an inchoate time in pure chaos around not knowing what's real. So what I want people to do, everyone listening, please, is notice how you are feeling, your level of anxiety, your level of strong emotions. How often do you feel grief or anxiety or depression or powerlessness for what's happening? And then after you experience those emotions, which are valid, I mean, they're signals to me that you're paying attention to feel these occasional despair total anxiety, overwhelm, powerlessness, very familiar to me almost every day. But then what do I do with them? I decide I still want to serve. I still want my work and life to make a difference. And I'm just going to figure out what's needed in my local community, team, among my networks, among, in my family, what's needed and how could I contribute to that? I'm seeking meaning in the midst of breakdown. And I think that's the value of a good human life. One of the other pushbacks we also hear about, Meg, is it comes from the spiritual realm. It's this idea that somehow we're going to, I guess, evolve. There's going to be this great transformation. And I, I even have friends who talk about how they're bringing these evolved conscious beings, right, into the world and that they're going to sort of see us and help us emerge spiritually into this next realm and that the universe has a plan for us. I've heard you push back on that as well. It's another form of hopium, of course, but I find it a particularly dangerous one. How about you? Well, I would love it if they were right. But first of all, the universe, what is the universe? Two trillion galaxies. The universe doesn't have any interest in what we crazy humans are doing in our highly self-destructive ways of being together. I do feel that we have great assists from other realms, other dimensions. I don't, don't deny that because that's a very good support to me. But the belief that we can evolve and there's a confusion there. Evolution does not mean progress. We've made it into a synonym for progress. But what evolution means is you adapt to circumstances. And if you get it right, then you survive. And if you don't, you're gone. We're re facing a rate of change on the planet now where most species cannot adapt because things are changing so rapidly, especially among mammals. And the ones who are adapting quickly enough to create harm are things like mosquitoes and bacteria and such. So let's go back to these children coming in. I have a lot of grandchildren, two dozen grandchildren, and I think I now have 11 great-grandchildren. And I want my grandchildren to have a strong enough sense of values so that they can be of value, be of use for what's coming. Some of them are completely consumed by capitalism, how they look, all the things that are normal in this culture. But they have good, deep, strong values. And I keep asking them, what's the meaning of life? <laughs> you know, from a young age. And it's to be kind, and it's to help other people. And they get that, but they're still into their own teenage craziness, and some of them are married with children of their own. I think it is such a false, and I'm really glad you <laughs> seem to feel this way too, Sarah. It's such a false basis to think that through human consciousness of a very small minority of people, we're now over 8.2 billion people 
that those of us who are achieving higher levels of consciousness are going to somehow transform the earth, supersede biology, chemistry, and physics, the laws of the universe, and that it's all going to be good. I, I, I'm just gobsmacked personally by that whole perspective, although I have friends, as you do, who are still thinking, yep, we just have to get more people becoming more conscious, and then it's all going to transform. This is a non-physical view of life, and I have to say my science training is solid, and what we're seeing now is the planet just playing out by its rules, her rules, right? And we thought we could get away with that kind of lawlessness. We can't. We are not the most conscious people who've ever been on the planet. I have been a practicing Tibetan Buddhist, and I learned of whole hundreds of thousands of people who achieved the enlightened non-body state all at once because they had the right practices. A hundred thousand people, who are we to think that we're the first to develop higher levels of consciousness that will then lead us to transforming the material forms of the earth. It, it's a kind of arrogance. It's not only hopium, it's a kind of incredible arrogance to think that humans are the center of it all and we can be the means to change it all. And in all of this, what I want people to understand is what gives you strength and confidence to find a useful life? a path of contribution now. If you have an enlightened child, and I think I have met some of those, actually, great, then you have an ultimate responsibility to raise that child in ways that supersede your own levels of consciousness at the moment. Meg, what do you make of the, the pushback as well, that people have said this before, you know, and I cop this from some people, you know, people have been saying the end of the world is nigh, you know, for ages. What's so different about today? And I'll preempt things a bit by saying we have seen hard times before, but there are some very specific things about today. And you've touched on one of them already, and that is the problems we're facing today are global. So it's not like there's these isolated civilizations that can exist and collapse and 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 sort of rebuild elsewhere. I feel, I mean, this is a very particular time in human history. Because what we're really talking about, I know I touched on it, got you to touch on it before, you know, what is civilizational collapse going to look like? I guess I forgot to mention or get you to articulate, we're talking global, right, this time around, potentially. It's not about just an isolated Mayan civilization or a Roman civilization. We're talking about the world. That is what makes this time unique. So in the past, when civilizations have exhausted their resources, their environmental resources, when their soil has turned to desert, when the water has stopped and they've entered into drought, which happened with a number of now what we call Middle Eastern civilizations. When the people rose up in their decadence and only wanted their own pleasure, and no one was taking responsibility for being a good citizen or for contributing, that was a very geographically isolated downfall. Well, we're not in that position any longer. How are we and will we be affected by the war that is growing in the Middle East? How are we already being affected especially if you live in Europe, with the Ukrainian battle for their survival and the loss of grain to African countries, the loss of fuel to European countries. We are all being affected because we created an interconnected system, right? That's why we had supply chain issues. You couldn't get stuff. Prices went up during the pandemic, it's still going on. Corporate greed is at an all-time high. 
oil companies are still going ahead with plans to extract more oil, we've set these dynamics in motion globally because we are a global commercial enterprise at this point. Then we get to the big, <laughs> the big problem, which is it is now the Earth's climate, oceans, atmosphere, habitats, species that are suffering at a global level. We have, you know, other cultures would use all their resources and, and move. There's no place to move to. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I think that also, Meg, speaks to what we were just saying a moment ago, that the very thing that built up our civilization and made us sophisticated is also the thing that's going to be our downfall. The globalization that saw us expand and progress, it's also going to be our downfall. Now, look, I will talk to you about the specifics of how and when and how long and when we will we die in a separate sort of podcast and I'll give the details of that at the end of the episode in the show notes. But look, there's all kinds of scenarios. At the end of the day, though, we're looking at a process of of death, loss, grief, a whole range of things. And it could take on different forms. But really what we're going to have to do, the work that we're going to have to do, because it really begs the question, okay, so how are we going to live through this? Or, you know, as to the the title of one of your most recent books, who do we choose to be now? We need to be practicing radical acceptance, radical sitting in uncertainty, and that's absolutely key because we don't know when, how, and if. Well, we know if, but we don't know the when and the how. So what are some of the mindsets, the spiritual disciplines that can take us to a space where we can sit in radical acceptance? How do we allow for the paradoxes? How do we allow for the fact there are no longer like two sides? and an enemy out there that we can blame for all of this. So many of us are grappling with these very things right now as we're trying to contend with what's happening in the Middle East. But equally, it's also what we've been trying to grapple with with the climate crisis for a very long time. So what are your teachings that can speak to that, Meg? Well, I have the utmost compassion for all of us whose lives now we confront this great disappointment that things aren't working out the way we were told they were going to work out. And especially for those of us who live very comfortable, affluent lives, this is the biggest shock. And we have to honor that. If you grew up poor, none of this is surprising or none of learning how to deal with less or look at potential disasters and threats. If you grew up poor in any affluent country and in Southeast Asia and in Africa, where I've done a lot of work, you're just used to living life differently than we lovely affluent ones have been. This is our whole life, right? We're sitting here now in great comfort. So my, and then some people accuse us, well, you're privileged and you don't really understand. Yes, I am privileged and I want to use my privilege. I want to take responsibility 
for doing what I can to help other people. And so the first thing, though, is to recognize that many of us react to like the field of broken dreams or broken promises, and we'll do whatever we can, this is in the pattern of collapse, to scramble to get what we can while we still can, you know, and to want, of course, to protect our families, but pass that for found disappointment and even anger at, at things being taken away from us. I've spent a great deal of time in countries that have already collapsed. And I also talked to people prior to World War II. What did it feel like when you saw European life crumbling and disappearing? I, I don't even need us to go into that mindset. What I need us to do is honor our disappointment, our sense of loss, our grief, and our anger, really wanting to blame someone. But once you're past that, there's so much good work to be done. There's so much meaningful work to be done. We've, we've ripped the veil of affluence from our vision, but there are still people you care about that you want to serve. You still live maybe in a community where there's work to be done in helping others deal with loss and lack. And there's preparatory work to be done in creating viable food sources, things most of us don't want to think about, but I'm working with those people who are setting up urban farms and urban gardens. The, the joy, and I use that word, quite deliberately and not trivially. The joy is in working well together with other human beings, no matter what is going on. I learned this in a very shocking way when I was working in New Orleans post-Katrina. And I was talking, it was like 15 months later, talking to people who'd set up their own self-organized relief agencies to help their neighbors, or I talked to people who had been in search and rescue, and all of them described those as the most joyful experiences of their life, even though they were facing death and destruction. The work was to go and find people, take medicines, find bodies, and treat them respectfully, but they talked about those experiences as joyful. So over the years, I've I understand that, that joy is a consequence of being together. We don't know this. We think that happiness, which is not at all like joy, we, we've defined what makes us happy in our lives. And so when I say or others say, you know, in my experience, my most joyful moments were working in situations of tragedy where I could actually help someone else. That's a shocker. But that is a true statement of doing meaningful work with other human beings that serves them, and that is joyful work. Is that what you mean when you say you're not afraid to despair? Because I think despair is the overwhelming emotion a lot of people are feeling at the moment. I am not afraid of despair because I experience it so frequently, including at 3.30 this morning. I know how to just be with it and that it will then pass. And some of this is because I have spiritual practices of meditation and just opening to the world as it is. If you don't know your own capacity to move past despair, then it becomes very threatening and very dangerous. So we do need practices. We do need each other. We do need to not fear these dark emotions, but just be with them and they will pass if we let them. And certainly developing practices for centering, centering prayer or meditation for me is essential. I could not exist without those. A question I get asked, Meg, by a lot of people, and it's the question is coming up more and more. It's a big part of why I wanted to talk to you today. It's coming from people who are activists, documentary makers who've been working in the climate realm, 
and they're saying, look, how do I help now? I can see that we can't fix this. I can see that getting everybody together to recycle and to change their light bulbs and their voting patterns, it's not going to actually resolve things. So how do I help now? And I'll highlight something that you've said before. As people who have made a difference, as people who want to use our power and influence for good, we must understand that this world requires a different difference. And I love that line, this idea of a different difference. Explain what this different difference is that we need to be engaged in right now. How does being an activist, a carer, a leader, a warrior, as you put it, a warrior for the human spirit, how does that look now? This is my work, and I'm so glad you quoted me already. First of all, I feel the greatest sense of empathy and compassion for people who have been working in climate science. I'm in those groups. And I also have the greatest empathy and compassion for all the aid workers who've been dealing with refugees, migrants, now in in Gaza. It is impossible work because you are front and center dealing with reality of a horrific kind. You see what could have stopped it. This applies to issues of refugees, violence, and climate. You see what the solutions were, and then you realize it's too late. Think other dynamics are in motion, and we're not pulling out of this. I say this to everyone. We are not pulling out of this now. So the question is, what is, <laughs> I can't say this any other way, what is the meaning of my life? What do I want my life to mean? Well, I know I want my life to mean that I gave my very best in service to other human beings because that is what feeds and nourishes me. And, you know, in the midst of despair and in the midst of horror, when, when we're together, it makes a big difference. So all of these things are different different behaviors than what we were trained and taught to believe was meaningful life. So I boil it down now with this compassion towards the aid workers and the scientists who really now know how completely horrific it is and what's ahead of us. I want everyone to become locally focused and to look around with this clear seen as possible in any situation. If you're in a family mess, if you're in a corporate setting and things are getting worse and worse, if you're working with a group of other climate scientists, I want us to be the means for the suffering of other people to be lessened. And so I've just promoted that you within whatever group you're in or your location or your community, you look as clearly as you can and say, what's needed here? And then am I the one to contribute to this meeting? That makes for moment by moment and even long-term meaningful work, a different level of contribution. The contribution, the difference that makes a difference now is how can I support and serve the people I'm with, not how I'm going to create great change, not how I'm going to reverse climate change, not how I'm going to make my community, you know, work well together with high levels of rationality and compassion. I don't think any of these things, I know these things are no longer possible. So I want us to find how we can be of usefulness. And those moments are wonderful. They're nourishing. In the midst of all the darkness, if I have a good conversation with someone, I feel really nourished by it. I feel very relieved you saying those words because fundamentally, Meg, it makes sense. My body relaxes into that. I've been flogging myself thinking that, you know, we can all fix this, we can save the world. And to switch things around to saving the human spirit 
it's a it's a worthwhile pursuit. It makes sense. It feels achievable. It feels very very meaningful um, in terms of how we are going to live in this these these very very difficult times. I know the next book that's coming out in 2024, I think March, it's called Restoring Sanity. Again, it's another leadership book, but you're basically summonsing us to be sane leaders. And I think that is just extremely pertinent at the moment. I'm seeing a lot of people wanting to be voices of, of leadership in the Middle East conflict. And there's not a lot of sanity prevailing. There's a lot of anger. There's a lot of two-sidedism. There's a lot of bifurcation. There's a lot of good, you know, good versus evil, right versus wrong. It's it's profoundly insane. And I'm just wondering if there, you can give us a bit of an insight into some of the leadership ideas that you are putting forward in that coming book. Yeah, well, the title, it's a longer title. It's Restoring Sanity Practices to Awaken generosity, creativity, and kindness in ourselves and our organizations. And again, everything is local. I'm speaking now about the great need to create islands of sanity. We cannot stop the insanity. We cannot stop these terribly destructive war, aggression, greed. We cannot stop those at the greater level, even though they should have been stopped but they aren't, they weren't, and they aren't. So I really want to support all of us, whether we're a concerned citizen or a community worker or a leader, to do what we can to gather the people together in a very strong, protective community that I am deliberately calling an island because we have to also protect ourselves from these increasingly destructive dynamics over which we have no control. And what's going on in the Middle East right now is a terrible and perfect example. We cannot stop that. It has history. It has players. There's nothing we can do. So we have to prepare where we can to create, I'm calling these Islands of Sanity, they're places where you can still get together and do good work. So I give a number of practices that do lead to healthy community and do lead to people working well together. I want to say the word again, working well together again, but I realize that's age dependent. There are far too many people 30s down who never have had experience working well together. Shocking and terrible but us older folks have. So I don't know how long we can even pull ourselves together and do the hard work. I've defined def creating the island of sanity as the ultimate hard challenge of our leadership. I'm offering a course on it right now and will continue to offer courses on how you do this. It's very practical and it's very experimental. And for me, it's the right work at this time. Meg Waitley, thank you so much for all of that wisdom. As I say, we will dig down into a couple of quick, deeper, more challenging points in an additional sort of mini episode that I will run on my Substack, and I'll put the details for that in the show notes. But for the moment, thank you so much for all that you do, all that you contribute, all the quotes, the wisdoms that get that get shared around the, you know, the, all the various spheres in the science realms, the philosophical realms that I sort of work in. Your name comes up so often and you are a wonderful salve and leader. So thank you. And Sarah, I want to thank you for your courage to go into these things and to want those who look up to you or look to you for guidance. You're being very brave and it's very important. So thank you. That means a lot to me. Thank you, me. This is a topic that many of the conversations that I've been having here on Wild with you have been leading to. There is a much bigger conversation to be had around all of this, and I've been having it kind of largely over at Substack if you would like to join the community over there where we dig into these kinds of themes in a very honest and raw and confronting way. I've really had to look into the data and where this data is coming from 
and to hear from different voices in economics, science, history, etc., before accepting the reality that the civilizational collapse thesis presents. Now, you might want to do the same, or you might really feel there is not enough in it for you to act on right now. I'd like to pull out some wisdoms, though, that are valid regardless of the world view that you might take, so to speak. So Meg mentions that, you know, if you're privileged and rich, rather than feeling self-conscious and guilty about it and then avoiding, you know, public platforms, you should see it as a responsibility to use that privilege to help others. It's a privilege to be privileged. And I think that's quite empowering, especially at the moment. In the world where things have got so complex and global and interconnected, the most powerful thing we can do is go local, she says. Bring things in close. When we can't save the world or we feel we can't, we can save each other. We can save the human spirit. She also flags that the work of humanitarian workers and climate activists and the carers of the world is impossible work. And I like that she says it that way. I think we know this, and I personally ache for all of us, all of you out there who do this kind of work, and for everyone just caring about the human spirit and what we're feeling at the moment. I'll read out that bit in the book again that I read out in the interview that speaks to activists wondering where the focus should now turn. Meg writes, as people who have made a difference, as people who want to use our power and influence for good, we must understand that this world requires a different difference. That difference difference is about becoming warriors for the human spirit, she says. And I didn't ask Meg this, but I'm guessing that this is what she suggests we now try to save, the human spirit. She also flags that there's two questions to ask when you're wondering how best to be of service, and that's what's needed here and am I the right person to attend to this need? They're very good questions. There's so much more to talk about, obviously. And as I flagged, there's an extra 10-minute episode that I'm going to put up on Substack in which we drill down into a few specifics. Meg ultimately provides me with personal support in that conversation and she offers to be my elder, at which point I gave in to tears. That episode, that extra 10-minute episode, is over at Substack, sarahwilson.substack.com. Everyone, please stay courageous and wild. I'll see you next week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.